The cookout is sacred. It's the closest thing we get in modern life to the tribe gathering around the ceremonial fire. It's all the generations, all together, trying to negotiate some middle ground between the old folks' traditions and the young people's insistence on being themselves, even if the old folks don't approve. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm super groovy. Awesome. How are you? I am also pretty super groovy. Awesome. We've actually moved into the tiny house, which is very exciting. And as with any type of moving house, it's got its stresses, but it's nice to have our space and move our things into it. Oh, that's so wonderful. I'm so glad that's coming to fruition for you folks. It's been, you know, it's been a long time coming. So I'm really happy to see that happening for you. Thank you. We're finally getting some sunny summer weather over here in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm looking forward to taking some time off next week, which is kind of a miracle for me. It's been a while since I've had any personal time off. And of course, I'm thinking of the upcoming Independence Day holidays and maybe having a cookout with some friends or at least with myself and my family. We'll see. Fun. I love cookouts. And I absolutely love Nicole Taylor's introduction to the cookout and barbecue section of our cookbook that we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, Watermelon and Red Birds. And we've actually talked about the power of gathering around fire in episode 25, Campfire Foods Harnessing Fire Foil Packets and Foods on Sticks, and how it inevitably connects us to the past and the present. And I think that Nicole's description of not only the physicalness of the generations being represented, but the ideologies and the philosophies being represented, and the importance of trying to find that middle ground. And I love the idea of the cookout as a way to bring not only disparate generations, but disparate cultures together in the hope that the middle can be realized. Mm -hmm. So... It will probably come as no surprise that the recipes that I chose are related to the cookout. And the first recipe is rhubarb barbecue sauce. Now, a word on barbecue sauces. Based on my research in African-American culture, barbecue sauce is almost as sacred as the cookout itself. As historian Ophelia Pinkard affirms, and I quote, The barbecue sauce for the meat is a work of art. Each Juneteenth, an effort is made to foster the barbecue sauce as the talk of the day. And she goes on to say that traditionally, each recipe is kept a secret and never given to outsiders. And I came across several stories of barbecue sauce recipes lost as the maker passed on, deathbed confessions of 
the secret <laughs> ingredient in a family recipe and hoaxes intended to swindle the award-winning recipe from a maker. Indeed, some of these recipes aren't even shared within a family. The recipes for these sauces are so important that they have actually inspired marriages and much like the arranged marriages of history, which formed strategic alliances, the barbecue marriages ensured the treasured sauce recipe could be co-opted by the needy or greedy family. I love that idea. I know you won't share it with me unless I become part of your family. And maybe not even right. then. It's definitely an interesting <laughs> riff off of the inheritance drama story of the sacred item that, that's supposed to be passed down to the firstborn son's firstborn daughter, whatever, right? And all the right. machinations that go into to arranging to be the one who inherits that. But Right. <laughs> I love that. It's a potent, it's a potent image, isn't it? The idea of the secret recipe. And we certainly have plenty of it in our history. Think of Colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken with the 11 herbs yeah. and spices and it's a secret recipe or even Skyline brand Cincinnati style chili. They've, their recipe is supposedly yep. secret. Yeah. People want to know. They want to know how to make it themselves, which I also think is a really interesting thing there too. You know, that we're not content right? to... Let it be secret. Let a family have their secret thing and that, oh, that this is joyful. We go to see that family in order to enjoy having this thing. It's the, I want it for myself because I want to be able to make it. Yeah. That is, it's an interesting human component that we feel like we have to own that rather than, like you said, the joy of being served, right? Yeah. We really seem to not tolerate that well. Yeah. Though rhubarb is not necessarily an ingredient that's associated with African-American culinary traditions, rhubarb is actually said to have originated in Siberia and was widely used for its medicinal properties by the Chinese. It's actually a laxative, which I didn't know. (laughs) So be very careful. But it's 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 a hardy plant mm. and it can weather extreme environmental shifts, which makes it a pretty symbolic ingredient mm. to add to this sacrosanct secret food, right? And as we discussed in our Juneteenth episode, as well as the first episode of Watermelon and Redbirds, the color of the rhubarb is significant to the Juneteenth celebration. Now, the ingredients for this recipe for the rhubarb barbecue sauce are really ingredients that you would expect in a fusion of Memphis, Kansas City, and Carolina sauces. And it has this depth and this richness and the tanginess of each of those respective recipes with the surprising kind of lip puckering tartness from the rhubarb. I really, really liked it. And I loved being able to use rhubarb in a more savory way. In the head note, she said, you know, if I say the word rhubarb, the next thing that probably pops into your mind is pie. And I think that's so true of all of us is that it's we expect that to be a pie rather than in some type of a savory dish. So I really, I really appreciated this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a recipe that really embodies Nicole's premise of what this cookbook is and what it isn't. It's a bridge between these traditional flavors and flavors that broaden the culinary scope. Mm-hmm. It's not a compendium of experiences, tastes, and recipes from the first Juneteenth celebration. It is a cookbook that celebrates and unifies all of the experiences, past and present, that have shaped and continue to shape a culture's culinary history and its influences on the foods that we eat. And I think that the 
favorite part of this recipe, my favorite part of this recipe is that it's finished with butter. And I went and looked for several other recipes to see if this was something that was traditional in any type of a barbecue sauce. And I could not find one recipe that was finished with butter. What I love about this is that it it felt like this really appropriate juxtaposition of refinement and this unpretentiousness of what a barbecue sauce really is. Yeah, you know, it's funny that the idea of having the sauce finished with butter is definitely something that we've seen from Mastering the Art of French Cooking. I mean, this is definitely something you see in the European sauces. I was surprised by that too, because, you know, I have a small amount of experience with sauces. As you know, it's a whole world that I'm trying to open and get used to the idea of saucing my plate. I I didn't really grow up eating sauces. It's sort of a new field for me, but I love that Mm. unctuousness that you get from a butter finished sauce. It's delightful, (laughs) but I get like, I would not have associated a butter finish with a barbecue sauce, but it it does. It gives it that sense of an elevated feel to it. I think a lot of her recipes are intended to do that has Mm. sort of a it's true she's trying to inspire us right she says that throughout the book I'm trying to inspire Mm -hmm. us to use our past use certain stereotypes to have us think about what could be coming next as well let's use the past to imagine the future as you say this is not a replication of the first Juneteenth celebration by a long shot right but it is an opportunity to look at where we are now and where we're going to be moving ahead And the idea that she's bringing in these ingredients too, like rhubarb and Szechuan peppercorn, things that we may not necessarily associate right off with black cooking. Mm. She's challenging us to kind of, you know, think globally. Right. What did you serve it with? Like, how did you serve that? Tell me more, like, how did you eat and serve this? So this goes into the second recipe that I made because it actually uses the rhubarb sauce as a base for this dish that is quintessentially a barbecue and cookout dish, baked beans. Now, Nicole's recipe is called meatless baked beans. It's another dish that celebrates this inclusiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Because baked beans, when you think of baked beans, you typically think of pork and beans. Most baked bean recipes that I have experienced have some type of pork, some type of bacon, So rather than the traditional pork, she has opted for shiitake mushrooms, Mm. which makes it vegetarian. Mm. So I love the fact that we're still in this concept of inclusion and moving Mm -hmm. forward rather than just this is how it's always been done. So this is how it will always be done. Right. She also, in this recipe, allows us to use canned beans. The ingredient list lists the dried beans first, but she does allow us to use canned beans rather than the dried beans if you're pinched for time or if dried beans aren't something that you generally have in your pantry. And we talked about this type of granted permission by another author when we discussed (laughs) mastering the art of French cooking. So rather than making a dish off limits because of an ingredient, each of these authors have given permission to make a substitution that makes the dish approachable. And I think that it's such an important component when you are using a cuisine as a medium to open up dialogues. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded here of water lily eggs of all things, 
from the mm. Women's Suffrage Cookbook. I don't cook beans very often. I'm not incredibly fond of beans in general. I think I've almost exclusively used canned beans in dishes that have beans in them because I don't know how to cook from dried. Again, it's not something I've had to do. So it's not something I've really challenged myself to do. I did try it once and it was horrible. <laughs> it took so long to get a result that for me ended up being so mediocre. But I wanted to try to be accurate to the recipe. And that was also what I had done with the water lily eggs, which I thought was ridiculous that you hard boiled something for 20 minutes. But then realizing that hard boiling was not hard boiling the way that I probably think of it. I think what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to get to is that Cooking from an intentional place, from a, a method that perhaps you are unfamiliar with. I remember with the water lily eggs, imagining a parallel between me and my great, great grandmothers who were of age to have participated in the Women's Suffrage Cookbook. Having that sense of connection with them because I was doing mm. to the best of my ability the dish the way they would have done it. With some obvious exceptions, I have a modern stove. <laughs> I'm not cooking over wood flame. But it was a humbling experience. And I felt connected to yeah. the, the hers of my great great grandmothers doing it that way. Speaking of connection and dialogues, the chapter that this recipe resides in is the cookout and barbecue chapter. And I read that first paragraph of the chapter as we opened up the episode. And she goes yeah. on in the introduction to this chapter, she goes on to outline what her family described as the quintessential black cookout and barbecue. And I literally found myself giggling, nodding in agreement, and realizing that my experience with family gatherings is really not that far removed. But where she refers to floral print caftans, I had to insert Wranglers, Carhartts, <laughs> and Columbia jackets. <laughs> and man, my, ver my version of family cookout is largely fashioned by white capri pants or shorts, crisp linen tops, strappy sandals. It was definitely California casual, which was a lot mm. of very crisp, trendy, a clean look. I don't, I know I must have worn jeans when I was younger, but I just don't remember <laughs> that many casual family cookout type things. Somehow the point was to make it look like you put no work or no heavy effort into preparation <laughs> that probably honestly that you had staff that did it for you. And that might have been just a weird family cultural thing or even a South African thing. I'm not always sure, you know, what's different between my family and say somebody else's. That That's really interesting. I love that yeah. it was important that there was very little effort put into this, but that it might have been presented by somebody else. She runs through the phases of their day mm -hmm. by introducing all of the characters in attendance from the arrival of the young cousin, who clearly is the ne'er-do-well, <laughs> to the trying-to-be-cool drunk neighbor, to the aunties Aww. making the whole day come together, to the oblivious right. children who are always asking when the food will be ready, rather than can I help mm -hmm. you with anything, to the of big course. mamas who have earned the right to occupy the sofa, Fox Aww. fans ensuring their comfort. 
And I think that we can all draw those correlations to Nicole's checklist of the elements of this type of get together. And I think that we can still appreciate the very unique cultural components of each of our Mm. family get togethers. Mm -hmm. In the opening episode of Watermelon and Redbirds, we discussed our experiences with family gatherings, as well as another dish quintessential to barbecues and cookouts. And that was potato salad. So in that same vein, Kim, Mm, if you were to follow Nicole's advice to gather your tribe whenever you can and feed them well, what would you prepare? This is such an interesting question because I had two households growing up. I know I've I've talked about Mm. this before, divorced Mm -hmm. parents when I was very young. And so I've had two complete households, my, my mom's and then my father and my stepmothers. And even though my parents came from the same country, the traditions grew separately in, in both households. So I, I find myself really trying to blend some of those ideas as well as, you know, the ideas that I've created as a human being for the summer cookout kind of party. I get fairly obsessed with this image of Americana, this sort of all-American backyard barbecue image portrayed in commercials is actually mm. the first thing that really comes to mind for me. They, you know, you can't have a picnic without the ketchup. And this is everything's made better by this brand soda. So for a number of years, primarily in my late 20s and early 30s, I was kind of obsessed with collecting recipes that I thought would cater to the occasion that I was trying to create mm. as if the dishes made the occasion. And I suppose that they do, right? There are things that you would serve at a 4th of July barbecue are different from what you would serve at Thanksgiving, obviously. We expect certain things to be on the table. And so some of the dishes over the years that I've kind of pegged as being that summer cookout kind of thing that I see in my mental table, if you will, Mm -hmm. is pineapple lime ginger punch made with Mm. like ginger ale, lime juice, and pineapple juice. It's actually super tasty. But again, it's something I would only really drink in the summertime. My family was big on marinated steaks as opposed to, say, hamburgers or hot dogs. My stepmother made an amazing barbecue chicken that I still, she just told me how she does it. I still can't quite get it there. I don't, I don't know how she does Secret it. Secret recipe, it sounds like. Secret recipe. <laughs> I really love an orzo or a rice salad. I think cobbed corn is super essential But these days I really like a raw summer corn recipe that actually Mm. has a bunch of chopped fresh summer vegetables, tomatoes, cucumber, peppers. Of course, what I'd really like to figure out, and this is a nod to my heritage, obviously, is a braai, which is a South African barbecue. And there are some rules I've discovered that make a braai what it is that are different from what we think of as an American barbecue. So if you'll give me the grace for a minute to talk about this. In a traditional braai, meats are cooked over wood fire and almost always using local wood if you can. And so in South Africa, that's not evergreen, right? They don't have the same kind of trees that we have here. So we're mm. also talking like vine wood or some of the lighter, drier woods are going to burn like hot and fast. Just some really interesting ideas about wood, right? And for modern braais, you can cook over charcoal but it would be completely laughable to cook a braai over propane or a gas. That's no longer a braai. The idea of this cooking fire is maintained throughout the braai. So even after you're done cooking, mm. you maintain this sort of central hearth piece 
It's a centerpiece or like a symbolic hearth. And you eat around it, you know, you drink your drinks, you chat, you talk. But the idea is that you're central to this bit of fire. The host is called the Bry Master, and it is completely untoward to interfere with their methods of fire building, maintenance, or their grilling techniques. It, you absolutely are not supposed to be a backseat briar and tell them how to do it. <laughs> their house, their bry, their rules. We would, of course, have to build a proper fire pit in my backyard to be able to accomplish any of this. We have the space. Mm -hmm. We're thinking about changing it up outside so we can enjoy our backyard a little bit more. Right now, we're pretty much nerdy indoor dwellers in front of our computers. Maybe that's just back to where I started. Maybe it's just that dream of the kind of life we would have. And, you know, these recipes are going to make that happen. How about you, Leigh? What would you serve? Oh, you know, it's interesting that you talk about the briars because we actually, when we lived in Seattle, we had a barbacoa pit. <sighs> and so much of what you just talked about is really what happened when we would do a barbacoa. I mean, it was a whole ritual to start the fire in the morning and get the coals to where they needed to be. And you put so much intention and so much effort into building that fire that we would make sure that we used that fire throughout the whole meal. So yeah. it was used for the meats, it was used for the desserts, and in a lot of cases, we could actually use the coals the next morning for breakfast. So I love this idea of the cookout and the fires and the barbecues. In listening to what you just talked about, I kept thinking, wow, it really feels like Nicole's book, though neither one of us are of that culture, mm -hmm. was very inspirational into looking into our culture yeah, and being inspired by what she's presented here. I love the idea of you talked about the cobbed corn and rather than the that it being this summer corn recipe, again, moving back to her cookbook, talking mm -hmm. about looking at where we were, but moving forward in this culinary adventure and these culinary expressions. For me, I know her cookbook has been very inspirational in that way. And I really appreciated it. And I loved the photographs. I loved her head notes. I loved the stories. I loved the opening of each of the chapters that really talked about the culture and what was important. And not only that, but like I said, in the beginning of the cookout, and barbecue, I, I could relate to so many of the things mm -hmm. that she said. Yeah. And it really shows that we are so much more similar than we think we are. We really are. <laughs> yeah. And just to riff off this for a minute too, compared to the books that we've been talking mm -hmm. about so far this season, yeah. this one is new. Yep. You know, mm -hmm. it's not even a year old yet. And it was an ambitious effort on Nicole's part, but also on the publisher's part, right? As we had talked right. about before with Edna Lewis's cookbook, this idea of her editor was as instrumental in her creating that cookbook as Edna was herself. I have to give credit to Nicole's publisher, and actually she does to a great extent as well, because it sounds like from what I've read in the foreword was that she had these ideas, but it was really her editor kind of pushing her to put some shape and some vision into this project that really got this particular book off the ground. Nicole had already published mm -hmm. a cookbook, but this one in particular, that is really the first commercial cookbook to talk about the food of Juneteenth and Black celebrations. I'm yeah. really eager to see where we go with this, because I really do feel, as you've expressed, Leigh, that this has given me an opportunity, an insight into 
a culture with which I am not familiar with on a day-to-day basis that Mm -hmm. may have largely experienced through media, TV, movies, music, books, magazines, but not, you haven't lived in a predominantly black neighborhood or mm-hmm. even city, mostly West Coast girl. And, yeah. and while I've traveled a little bit in the South and the Southern US, but even the cities that have heavy black culture, African American culture, like Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, etc. A lot of the East Coast as well. I, I just don't, I just haven't had those experiences. And so I appreciate having this view that is not an archaic and stereotypical view where I'm going right back in time necessarily, but that I'm, I feel like I'm given an opportunity to look back and forward at the same time. I think that's yes. what I'm trying to say. I think that's what I really appreciated about this cookbook yeah. was the, I guess the foundation in the past, yeah. but the building on rather than just living in that one time period. So I really appreciated that. Yeah. One more final thought. You know, I do feel that in global cuisine, in the culinary world, we've done a lot of deep exploration into Asian foods and as well into Mm -hmm. South American and Latin American foods. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean we, you and me. I mean, we as a global culinary society Right. But I feel like Africa has really been deeply overlooked. And you can't talk about Africa without also talking about the United States because of the history between the two continents. Mm -hmm. But we're ripe for this exploration. This is time. Yeah. We're ready. We're I think Mm -hmm. we're ready to start having conversations about African food traditions. So I'm excited to be embarking on this. I'm grateful to Nicole Taylor for broadly offering this opportunity for us to start to understand the food of Juneteenth and other Black celebrations. I'm excited about it. It's not the end. And so I'm eager to see what comes from this too. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat. And please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare a couple of minutes away from those baked beans and potato salad to rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify, we would be so appreciative. We really want to continue to build the fabulous As We Eat community. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. We would be honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber for great content about our shows, deeper dives into ingredients or dishes, and interesting niblets from our great As We Eat community. Please subscribe at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole lot of passion. Ba-ba-da-da-ba-ba-ba-da-ba. ba 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 